When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's Saturday the 4th of February 1922 and the bubonic plague is again visiting Sydney. Estimates say there are 1 million rats in the city. That's one for every resident. But only a handful of people have thus far been infected, so there's no real cause for concern. Certainly, Sydney's lived through worse recently. Four years of worry, horror and grief at the slaughter and maiming of tens of thousands of men in the Great War. Then, close to a year of the so-called Spanish flu, which put thousands of civilians into their graves. Now, it's the 1920s, and if they're not quite roaring, they are at least exciting. It's a safe bet the Black Death stalking Sydney slums is far from the minds of the thousands of people enjoying the golden sands of Coogee Beach this Saturday afternoon. Saturday afternoon still marks the end of the working week. And more than any other beach, Coogee is the city's jewel. The best place to relax, swim, splash in the waves and shoot the breakers. That is, have a bit of a body bash. There's an added attraction today too in the Coogee Lifesaving Carnival. This popular event brings together those bronzed and heroic specimens of Australian manhood from the Coogee Club and similarly splendid competitors from Clovelly and North Bondi clubs. The sky is overcast, but it's hot and sultry. The sort of weather that just beckons you to take a refreshing dip. And that's what Milton Coughlin decides to do. At 18 years of age, he's one of Coogee's most popular young surf lifesavers. Milton's a strapping chap. 5'8", dark-haired and handsome. He's heroic too. Just last week, when he was at Maroubra, he helped save a swimmer from drowning. Around quarter past three, 
Just as the carnival's about to kick off, Milton dives into the water, off the rocks, out the front of the Coogee Club sheds at the south end of the beach. This channel, known as the Reef, is the best spot for shooting the breakers. But it's also known to be the haunt of sharks, and some lifesavers call out that Milton's making himself bait. If that is the case though, he's not the only one feeling brave. Milton, shooting some good breaks, is soon joined by three other lifesavers. These body surfers are watched by their mates and cheered on by beachgoers. Then, something's wrong. Milton, whose father's from shore, starts thrashing the water with his arms and fists. He turns to his mates and shouts, Go for your life, boys! There's a shark here! The trio swim for it, and the cry of shark goes up the beach. But Milton can't get away from the creature closing in on him. So, he's going to have to fight. What happens in the seconds and minutes that follow will forever change Australia's relationship with the surf, the beach, and with sharks. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the first part in the two-part Forgotten Australia episode, Shark Attack of the Century. This episode's about a lot of things. Shark attacks, obviously. Not just in 1922, but before and after that. Balancing the horrific, you're also going to hear about the heroic. Yet, this episode's also about how we often value some brave souls more than others. This episode's also about the element of luck. It's about how split-second decisions can enrich and end lives. It's about how people can see the same event very differently. And it's about how sensationalist media reporting can shape attitudes and establish an enduring misperception of risk. Coastal and river-dwelling Aboriginal people viewed sharks as ancestor beings. On cliffs at Bondi, for instance, you'll find large rock carvings of sharks that date back a thousand years or more. But while sharks were revered in the dreaming, they were also feared as predators in day-to-day -day life. Aboriginal people would have fallen victim to sharks many, many times over tens of thousands of years. We get a sense of this from Marine Officer Watkin Tench, who sailed with the First Fleet, and who wrote that when a shark was caught from the Sirius in 1788, the local Aboriginal people reacted to the six-and-a-half-foot specimen with, quote, the utmost horror, which he put down to them probably being well acquainted with the effects of their voracious fury. Tench also mentioned an Aboriginal orphan boy named Bondle, who told white settlers his father had been killed in battle and his mother died after she was, quote, bitten in two by a shark. Given how closely Australia is now associated with sharks as a threat, it might seem remarkable that the first fatal attack on a white person wasn't recorded for nearly 40 years from 1788. Yet, it's not really that strange because A, shark attacks are rare, B, European settlers were relatively few in number, C, white people tended to keep out of the water, and D, anyone who went missing near the harbour or a river would have been presumed drowned or lost in the bush. While Australia today prides itself on being a beach-loving place, this wasn't the case in the first half-century or more of white settlement. The English went for harbours, bays and rivers, where there was fresh water, shelter from wind, wave and storm, and easier access to the interior, where crops might be grown and animals raised. 
Officers, sailors, marines, settlers and convicts weren't in any sort of a hurry to jump into the surf. After all, they'd all arrived after long sea voyages where death by drowning was a major fear. Most couldn't even swim. And those who could, couldn't easily get to beaches that would later become world famous. It was a long walk or ride through bush or a boat trip out through the heads and future pleasure spots like Bondi and Coogee were rather inhospitable. While today they're primo real estate, back then they were characterised by massive sand dunes. The beaches were pounded by waves that few knew how to enjoy safely. Early colonists and convicts who did fancy a dip usually did so inside the harbour and close to the town. Some splashed in sea baths. Others took a chance in open water close to shore. Either way, swimmers had to be discreet because daylight bathing wasn't just frowned upon as indecent, it was actually illegal in Sydney from 1833 and around the whole colony by 1838. Sydney's early settlers weren't generally aquatically inclined, but they were awake to the threat of sharks in the waterways of their new home. Some of this was thanks to Australia's first newspaper, the Sydney Gazette and New South Wales Advertiser, which was started by transported convict George Howe in 1803. George was such an amiable fellow that he was nicknamed George Happy. By virtue of being the only newspaper editor in the colony, George Happy pioneered shark reporting in Australia. Unhappily, George Happy's family would also get up close and personal with one of these creatures. In February of 1804, the Gazette reported that a shark of enormous size had threatened a small boat containing three terrified fishermen and the young daughter of one of these anglers. This voracious monster seized baited hooks and nearly dragged the vessel under. Disaster was just averted when their fishing line snapped. It was an exciting yarn, and Australian newspapers' first shark scare story. The following year, October 1805, an Aboriginal man paddling a canoe on the north side of the harbour was stalked by one of these finny monsters of the deep. The creature banged against his low-in-the-water bark canoe, seemingly trying to tip him out. The man saved himself by throwing fish he'd caught into the water, one after the other, distracting the shark just long enough for him to get to shore safely. By July 1806, George Happy was even happier because he'd now been fully pardoned. That month in the Gazette, he warned that sharks could come after your little ones should you let them splish-splash in the harbour. A brief Gazette article was headlined, A Caution to Parents. Quote, on Tuesday last, a shark of immense size appeared at the hospital wharf at high water and regaled itself upon some pieces of refuse fish that had been thrown in. After making numerous revolutions to the terror of the spectators, who sincerely rejoiced at the same time that no ill-fated children had fallen within its merciless grasp, the prodigious monster sheared away unharmed, as no weapon could be procured in time to assault it. Six months later, January 1807, a man swimming in Cockle Bay saw a voracious animal coming straight for him. He swam for safety, quote, but he soon found himself in the pursuer's grasp and, when seized upon, gave a hideous roar, excited equally by pain and terror. The man's scream seemed to do the trick. The shark's jaws opened and he scrambled to shore. This is the earliest example I found of a shark bite story. Another common report, of course, would be the killing of monsters from the deep. 
In March 1812, the Gazette reported that a shark 17 and a half feet long and weighing between 1,100 and 1,200 pounds had been caught. When it was cut open, its stomach contained an entire pelican. But so far, in quarter of a century of white settlement, as far as anyone knew, no settler had suffered the same fate as that unlucky bird. When it did happen, George Happy and his Gazette missed out. That was because A. George Howe had died in 1821, happily, of non-shark and non-drowning related causes, and B. The attack happened not in Sydney, but down at Hobart, where it wasn't well reported, and thus wasn't picked up by the Gazette, which was now run by George's son Robert. However, a vivid account would be provided by witness George Thomas Lloyd in his 1862 memoir, 33 Years in Tasmania and Victoria. Though George Lloyd didn't provide a date, we can narrow it down because in 1837, Tasmanian newspaper The True Colonist alluded to this event and said it happened about 10 years ago. So, around 1827, on the Coal River at Pittwater, a fellow known as Amphibious Jack was with two other men collecting oyster shells to burn into lime. They were working in about a foot of water, but as they got farther from shore, it deepened. Having not had much luck and seeing George Lloyd on the opposite shore where he was supervising four men doing similar work, Amphibious Jack called out he was going to swim across, get some of their oysters and share the latest news of bushrangers. The middle of the channel was about eight feet deep. George's lime burners called out to Amphibious Jack warning him not to do it. That was because one of these men had been attacked by a shark at this very spot. But Amphibious Jack so-called because he was such a good swimmer, declared he had no fear, and out he splashed. Amphibious Jack was soon past the deepest bit and was wading to the safety of the opposite shore in about four feet of water. He was laughing at the supposed danger when he was attacked by not one, but two sharks. One bit into his calf and shook him down into the water. The other shark made off with his oyster sack. George Lloyd's lime burners armed themselves with pickaxe, spade and crowbars and ran into the shallows to help. With the shark busy jerking at its victim's leg and the water cloudy with blood, it didn't see the imminent threat. As George Lloyd wrote, one man swung, quote, the avenging pickaxe, which, with a hearty curse and a powerful arm, was sent clean home through the head of the formidable fish. The shark swam off into deeper water, with the axe still buried in its skull. The bleeding victim was carried to shore, but, quote, the main arteries of the leg were so effectually severed that the scarlet tide of life had finally ebbed. Amphibious Jack was no more. From bravado gone wrong to bravery that proved futile, not to mention the graphic detail of George Lloyd's account, the attack on Amphibious Jack had many of the hallmarks of later public shark tragedies. But most presumed fatal encounters weren't the result of foolhardiness, but of sheer bad luck. They also happened quietly with few or no surviving witnesses, and thus there'd be an element of doubt about whether a shark had actually been responsible. In December 1830, again near Hobart, two servants got into trouble in a boat which was swamped in bad weather. One, a man named Robert Dudlow, was a good swimmer. He jumped into the water and, as the Colonial Times said, quote, he was attacked by a shark and carried under. The body was found soon afterwards in a dreadfully mutilated condition. The other man was found drowned in the submerged boat. 
Given there seemed to be no surviving witnesses, it was only assumed the first man had been killed by a shark, though he might have been mauled posthumously or his injuries might have been caused by something else. So this attack was a maybe. Same went six months later at Tinderbox Bay, again outside of Hobart, which really at this time was not a place to be in the water, when a schooner capsized with five men meeting their maker. Four of them drowned. As for the fifth man, the skipper, who survived his two-mile swim to shore, reported the fellow had been nearby in the water when he'd shouted, Oh God! When the captain looked around, the man was gone. Either he'd been the victim of a severe cramp and drowned, or he'd been taken by a shark. The body wasn't found, so it really was guesswork. Back in Sydney, the 1820s were a quiet time in Sydney for sharks, at least as far as the Gazette's reporting went. Robert Howe would stay in the role of editor, but as the decade came to a close, he wanted to retire, even though he was just 33. Late January 1829 saw a shark mystery on Sydney Harbour. Captain Seibold, skipper of the ship Sydney Packet, was reported missing. He was prominent enough that a reward was posted for any information about his whereabouts. Then, a fisherman known as Billy the Tailor reported he'd caught a shark in the harbour. When he'd cut it open, he found in the entrails the foot of a man, still in part of a stocking and part of a boot. Billy was worried, not so much about the foot, but about bringing it back to shore with his cargo of fish. He thought buyers might reject his catch, so he threw the boot, foot and all, back into the harbour. The Sydney Monitor newspaper, along with the Gazette, speculated that the foot had belonged to the missing Captain Seibold. But learning the details of the boot and the stocking, his people said based on what they knew of his style, it hadn't belonged to him. But by then, Sydney was talking about another harbour tragedy. Robert Howe had recently bought a small boat he'd take out for a spot of fishing in the early evening. On Thursday the 29th of January 1829, he went out with the youngest of his children. This was his three-and-a-half-year-old son Alfred, middle name Australia. Robert and little Alfred Australia were accompanied by a servant. The trio were off Pinchgut Island, which was then still a rocky pyramid that rose 75 feet from the harbour. They'd had a fine time and were about to head home when a wind blew up suddenly and their boat capsized and sank very quickly. Robert wanted to swim for other boats moored in the harbour. The servant wanted to make for Pinchgut. They wasted valuable time doing neither and exhausted themselves trying to keep little Alfred Australia out of the water. Robert started to sink while the servant left the boy and swam off. When a boat arrived, young Alfred Australia was alive and afloat thanks to air that had been trapped in his clothing. The servant also survived. But Robert, despite being a strong swimmer, had drowned, partly because he'd become tangled in fishing lines. Now, we're going down a little rabbit hole here, but trust me when I say we'll pop up in the right shark-infested place. The Sydney Gazette would keep going with Robert's wife Anne as one of the proprietors, and she'd take on a writer named William Watt. William had been sentenced to 14 years transportation for embezzlement and had arrived in Sydney as a convict in 1828. He was an intelligent and educated chap and he was assigned to work as a clerk. He got his ticket of leave by April 1832 for the Sydney district and he began writing for the Gazette. Around the middle of the following year, he defected to the Sydney Monitor where he was made editor. 
but William returned to the Gazette by March 1834, and many came to believe he was its de facto editor, which was a bit of a no-no given he was still a convict. That year, William wrote and published a 74-page pamphlet called Party Politics Exposed, which took the form of a highly detailed and thoroughly referenced letter to the Secretary of State for Colonies in London. This was the British Cabinet Minister responsible for Australia. William Watt went right to the top, and his scandalous tract set out how badly authorities and colonists were treating their assigned convicts. Here's a sample. Quote, I've seen men for mere venial offences scourged till the blood has dripped into their shoes. And I've seen the flesh tainted and smelling on a living human body from the effects of severe flagellation, the very maggots writhing about in a wretch's flesh. And for what? Not for robbery, nor violence. Not for a crime that threatened dangerous consequences to anyone, but upon the charge of an overseer that the prisoner neglected his allotted task. William went further than just criticism. He named names. This led to one landowner taking him to court for libel. For championing the convict faction of colonial politics, William was pilloried by the conservative press. He was hauled before the Supreme Court on a separate trumped-up charge related to another stunt in which he stole a libelous story the Sydney Herald had pulled before publication. Despite a high-profile, well-publicised trial, the jury acquitted him, which had to make colonial authorities all the angrier. William really had put a target on his back, and a magistrate ordered his ticket of leave be transferred to Port Macquarie, which meant he had to go there to live and find work. This punishment amounted to exile. More of that in a moment. During the early 1830s, you'd find sporadic shark reports in the Sydney Gazette. In March 1832, the paper said a couple had been caught in the waters off the Sussex Street slaughterhouses. Quote, Bathers who frequent this part of the river will do well not to swim out too far. From that report, it seemed that Sydney sea bathers weren't too fussy about the quality of their water. Now, we've all heard that joke. Why don't sharks eat lawyers? Professional courtesy. Well, it really is a hoary old chestnut, with an April 1833 article in the Gazette saying, quote, Sea lawyers, or in plain English, sharks, have been seen during the past week in Darling Harbour. We would therefore advise the bathers in that quarter to look out. Had Gadfly William Watt written that? Very possibly. He was with the paper at that time. Despite close calls and sightings as reported in the Gazette and its competitors, New South Wales still hadn't suffered a known fatal shark attack. When it came, again, it wouldn't be in Sydney. In October 1835, Gazette proprietor Anne Howe took a steamer up to Port Macquarie with her children. The next month came the news. She'd applied for permission to marry ticket-of-leave convict William Watt. Chalk this up as another scandal in his chequered history. In February 1836, William and Anne became man and wife. Now, this radical convict critic, hated on and banished by the establishment, was legally, via her wealth, a man of means. While he couldn't return to Sydney, he could exert influence over the Gazette. William and Anne also soon had a farm on the Maclay River in the Port Macquarie district. A ticket of leave convict as a farm owner, himself in charge of convicts? It was outrageous. True to form, William again butted heads with authority, and this led to the dismissal of one magistrate in the Port Macquarie area. But a second magistrate struck back 
cancelling William's ticket of leave, and this returned him to convict status. William responded by absconding. When he was captured, he was sentenced to 50 lashes. Even some Sydney newspapers who had no truck with the man whatsoever thought this was a bit much, especially as he was an educated fellow who at one time had had the government's favour. But William was scourged, just like the poor wretches he'd described in his pamphlet. After that though, to much conservative outrage, the government then assigned him, as a convict, to a new master, his wife Anne. So William continued to live as a farm owner, even though other convicts in his situation were breaking rocks on the roads. On the 17th of January 1837, Alfred Australia Howe, now a few months shy of 12 years old, was at the farm on the Maclay River with a servant. They were some 50 miles from the coast, and Alfred was washing his feet in the shallows when he was suddenly seized by a large shark. It locked its jaws onto one of his calves and dragged him into the current. As the Gazette reported, quote, The man rushed in and, grasping the boy at the hazard of his own life, pulled him out of the monster's mouth and swam to land, just as the fish pursued them furiously to shore. This hero went unnamed, and it's not known whether he was rewarded. The servant managed to stop the bleeding and get Alfred to a doctor, but, as the paper reported, mortification soon set in. The surgeon ordered Alfred taken to the hospital at Port Macquarie. There, they'd try to save his life by amputating his leg. The boy was loaded into a cart, and the desperate journey began. But young Alfred died with a locked jaw, a symptom of tetanus, while they are on the road. You can imagine how traumatised Anne Howe was by this second tragedy. The third came just a week later. The circumstances were reported by extremely hostile newspapers, so the available information is best taken with a grain of salt. Apparently drunk, William Watt had ordered four convict servants to take him along the river in a rowboat, even though a fierce current was running, and only a madman would make such a decision. The boat capsized, and William and one of the servants drowned. When the Sydney newspapers got this intelligence, via the same steamer that brought news of young Alfred's death by shark attack, they seemed almost gleeful. New South Wales was rid of a thorn in its side once and for all. Poor Anne Howe, though, had lost two husbands to drowning and her son to a shark. It was a terrible chain of bad luck. If not for Robert's death, no marriage to William. If not for William's radicalism, no exile to Port Macquarie. If not for William's exile to Port Macquarie, no reason for young Alfred to be on the Maclay River that day and become the first recorded death from shark attack in New South Wales. After the death of Alfred Australia Howe, there'd be a handful of fatal shark attacks in the colonies each decade. Sydney's ocean beaches didn't figure at all. That was because they weren't yet an attraction. In 1842, for instance, in a publication called Teg's Almanac, Bondi was described as a place, quote, of peculiar loneliness, a shining sandy beach unmarked by human foot. But people began to visit ocean beaches in significant numbers from the mid-1850s, with boats taking people to Manly to dine, dance and stay at hotels, have picnics by the seashore and ramble along the sand. Around this time, on the south side of the harbour, a road through to Coogee also made it a popular destination for day trippers. Getting wet was also easier from the mid-1860s with a sea bath built at Coogee. 
other sea bars followed at other beaches, including Bondi, though there still wasn't a lot of surf bathing, which was what splashing or swimming in the waves was then called. One of the obstacles was that it was still illegal to bathe in daylight between the hours of 7am and 7pm. If you wanted to get into a sea bath or into the waves, you'd have to do so in the early morning or after dark. Despite it being frowned upon, an increasing number of people wanted to try surf bathing. In February 1889, a correspondent to the Daily Telegraph wrote, quote, Sir, one of the most delightful experiences of a summer residence at Manly is the open sea or surf bathing. It is indeed one of the chief amusements of a large portion of people. And by people, the letter writer meant men. Women were still banned from swimming, which the correspondent believed was a crude and prudish idea of modesty. Though surf bathing was increasingly popular, an 1894 photo at Bondi shows what a typical daylight scene at the beach looked like. In the image, about 200 people sit and walk on the sand and rocks. Men are in full suits with hats. Women wear full-length dresses beneath which are constrictive corsets. The only people in the water, and then only shin-deep in the shallows, are small boy children in shorts. If you haven't seen this particular picture, no doubt you've seen similar photos from the Victorian era. But soon after this, women would be allowed to swim, though in segregated baths, and again, only before 7am and after 7pm. Now, in most histories of Australian popular culture that touch on the subject of daylight bathing, you'll read that it was overturned after the heroic efforts of William Gotcher, editor of the Manly and North Sydney News. The story goes like this. In 1902, William ran an announcement in his paper that he'd swim in full view of everyone at Manly next Sunday at midday. Watched by a big crowd, he turned up, got into the water, and, to his disappointment, no one came to arrest him. So William announced in his paper he'd do it again. Same time, same place. This time, he was arrested. Interviewed by the Commissioner of Police, William won him over, getting permission for men and women to bathe in mixed company so long as they wore a costume that extended from neck to knee. Having read a couple of accounts of this in mid-century newspapers, I searched for original 1902 reports. What I found was nothing. And it's not like the city newspapers would have missed William Gotch's stunt. After all, that year they reported on him holding an event for a debating society, convening a meeting to form a Manly Progress Association, and delivering a lecture on Australian coinage. If he'd gotten into his togs and gotten into the water in the middle of the day, it would have made news everywhere. It is possible that William Gotcher championed the cause of daylight bathing in his newspaper. And maybe he even did take the odd cheeky daylight dip. But this story didn't appear in the newspapers until January 1907, when the Daily Telegraph reported it in vivid detail under the headline, All Day Surf Bathing, How It Was Won for Manly. Since then, it's gone down in legend, meaning that William's surname was spot on. Gotcha. In reality, the various beach councils and local police had realised there was a shift in public perception, and between 1902 and 1905, along the Sydney coast, the ban on daylight bathing went largely unenforced and then was lifted. By 1906, anyone could hit the waves on any beach from Manly to Maroubra any time they liked. Newspapers published articles on how to body surf, known as shooting the breakers. 
The papers also published safety advice from newly minted surf lifesavers. Caught in a rip? Go with it until free and then swim to the side. Want to avoid sharks? Don't go out too far from shore. In April 1906, the Daily Telegraph ran a piece headlined A Swimming Boom, which said, quote, Surf bathing has become a rollickingly popular pastime. It helped that beaches were ever more accessible. Horse-drawn and steam-powered trams had gone electric, and there'd soon be cars and buses too. More and more people lived and worked at Bondi, Coogee and nearby suburbs. Even as the population grew, and hundreds of thousands and then millions of people came to the beaches each year, there wasn't any huge spike in shark attacks in the first 20 years of the 20th century. From December 1900, when a man was taken in Middle Harbour, there appears to have been 10 confirmed fatal attacks on Sydney's harbour beaches and on the George and Lane Cove rivers. The last of these, at Sirius Cove off Mossman in January 1919, was a 13-year-old boy named Richard Simpson. A fisherman saw the flash of a fin and heard the lad cry for help, saying, I've been bitten by a shark. The man pulled his boat to the boy and hauled him aboard, but young Richard soon bled out from a massive bite wound to his right thigh. While his death did make news everywhere, newspapers didn't run his photo or that of his rescuer or the location. The coverage wasn't ongoing and there wasn't a sensationalist angle, which may explain why there was no call for a crusade to cull sharks. Richard Simpson's death was merely reported as the tragic result of taking a known risk. As the fisherman told the inquest, quote, Sirius Cove is always a source of danger. We warn people, but they won't take any notice. While there still hadn't been a fatality at an ocean beach, the risks there were also clear. In March 1916, for instance, a man was attacked at Curl Curl, the shark biting one of his heels. He splashed to scare it off and got to shore alive and in one piece. While sharks hadn't killed any surf bathers, there had been numerous well-publicised drownings, because a lot of people going into the waves couldn't swim well or at all. Reading about safety in the newspapers didn't necessarily equate with being able to save yourself. Though Manly was the first beach to have a surf boat and a surf lifesaver, Bondi Surf Bathers Lifesaving Club was the first such official Australian organisation. Established in February 1907, its members were soon using the first surf reel, which had a line and life belt that could be attached to a rescuer so he and whoever he was saving could be pulled ashore by three men managing the line and one man using the reel. The Bondi Club, which would be renamed the North Bondi Surf Lifesaving Club in 1911, was the first, but it was soon followed by other clubs at Manly, Bronte and Cronulla. By 1912, there were 17 clubs in Sydney and four at Newcastle. Countless people were saved from drowning by strong athletic lifesavers who'd been trained in rescue and in resuscitation. Lifesaving carnivals showcasing the skills of these heroes in races, competitions and demonstrations, along with fun novelty events, proved very popular. But of course, with lifesavers in the ocean more than anyone else, they were at greater risk of shark attack. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes 
without the ads. 1922 began with a lifesaver tragedy in New South Wales. On the evening of the 4th of January, up at Stockton Beach at Newcastle, John Rowe and four mates were shooting the breakers. John was 26, a prominent Stockton club member who'd received the Royal Humane Society's bronze medal in 1920 for gallantly trying to save a man who fell from the ferry into Newcastle Harbour. It was about 6pm and getting dark. John and his mates all caught a last wave before heading in. But John's was such a good one, he went out for one more. On the beach, his friends saw him raise his arm and then raise it again. John was in trouble and they sped into action. One donned a lifebelt while the other three managed the line and reel. By the time the rescuer got to where John had been, he was gone. Was it a shark? That was the headline in the Newcastle Sun the next day. The bite, the paper said, is shark infested. John Rowe's body was found a few days later, missing the head and almost reduced to a skeleton. From the way the ribs were broken, the coroner assumed he'd been killed by a shark. But, as the Sydney Morning Herald reported in its brief one-paragraph report, there was, quote, no means of ascertaining how death occurred. With no one having actually seen a shark, and this tragedy occurring far from Sydney, the story didn't merit much more attention than that. The city papers didn't carry a photo of the victim, of his friends, the beach, or the dead man's funeral. The situation would be very different exactly one month later. On Saturday the 4th of February 1922, Milton Coughlin went to the surf carnival at Coogee Beach. Milton was 18, so young that he'd never known in Australia where surf beaches weren't thought of as popular playgrounds. Milton's father Thomas came from Singleton. Not just the place, he was actually the great-grandson of Benjamin Singleton for whom the town was named. Thomas had become a postal worker at the age of 14 and risen quickly through the ranks to become a country postmaster before eventually taking over this role at Randwick. His fifth child, born in 1903, was Milton Singleton Coughlin. Milton enjoyed a comfortable middle-class upbringing, going to Trinity Grammar at Ashfield and then to Sydney Grammar. He was a stellar athlete and a particularly strong swimmer. Like his father, Milton went for a career in the public service. He joined the state railways and got a job as a clerk at Newtown Station. Like his old man, he reportedly showed promise and was marked for rapid promotion. On days off, you'd typically find Milton at Coogee Beach, where he was one of the Surf Lifesaving Club's most promising and popular young members. He represented Coogee at carnivals and towards the end of January had been instrumental in rescuing a swimmer who'd gotten into difficulties at neighbouring Maroubra. Milton was described by the Sunday Times as of perfect physical proportions. A portrait from this time shows a bright-looking character with dark hair and a high forehead. In the picture, he's handsome in a suit and tie and wears a smile that says he's quietly confident he can take on the world. Yet Milton probably wasn't smiling at the prospect of missing out on the Coogee Surf Carnival because he was rostered to work that day. The lad must have been stoked then when he managed to swap shifts with another worker. Milton got to Coogee just after lunch that Saturday. The sand was packed with thousands of people. He went to the club rooms at the southern end of the beach and chatted with other members. With the start of the carnival delayed a little because an official was running late, Milton decided to cool off by shooting the breakers out in the channel. He'd done it hundreds of times before. His father Thomas had worried though, 
and warned Milton never to surf there alone because there could be sharks. But soon after Milton got into the channel, he was joined by three other surfers, so there was nothing to be concerned about. Sydney siders adored surf carnivals, and this one today at Coogee had a couple of really big draw cards. Lifesaver Jack Chalmers was there to represent the North Bondi Club. Dark haired and all muscle, with legs like tree trunks, he was a formidable competitor. Jack Chalmers was the champion belt swimmer of the state. That is, the lifesaver who'd swim out to rescue someone in trouble, attached to the lifebelt and lifeline, managed by the linesman and the reel handler. Renowned sports writer W.F. Corbett in The Arrow said that Jack Chalmers was actually, quote, probably the best belt man in Australia. Like a lot of men in surf clubs, Jack was a return digger. He'd been born in Wellington, New Zealand in 1894, and he and his family had moved to Queensland, where they'd tried farming. As a young man, Jack had been an engine driver. Then came the Great War. Jack signed up in October 1915. This, of course, was after the horrors of Gallipoli were well publicised, so he knew what the war was like and what he was in for. The Dardanelles campaign was over by the time Jack shipped overseas at the end of 1915, and he was soon in Egypt. His nephew, Robin Chalmers, who'd go on to report Canberra politics for 60 years, would, in 2011, neatly summarise his uncle's sporting prowess and his war experience. Quote, One of the more demanding training regimes was a race to the top of the Great Pyramid of Khufu, the tallest of the pyramids. Young Jack was the first of his battalion to reach the top, and he won his division of the battalion's boxing tournament. After Egypt, Jack was a stretcher-bearer in the hell of trench warfare on the Western Front. The stretcher-bearer heroes had the most arduous and dangerous of jobs, going out into no-man's land and bringing back the dead and wounded. Jack repeatedly made it back from no-man's land in one piece, and he came home to Australia with an English bride, Jessie, who he'd married in 1917. The couple settled in Wallara in Sydney's eastern suburbs and had three children. Jack's younger brother Robin lived nearby, and he too was a North Bondi lifesaver and a New South Wales swimming champion. While Jack had served his adopted country, like a lot of veterans, he hadn't exactly been rewarded for his efforts. In February 1922, he was out of work, struggling to make ends meet. That was one of the great things about the beach. It was free. Jack Chalmers might have been the best belt man in Australia, but Frank Beaurepaire was on another level altogether. Born in Melbourne in 1891, his working-class father believed in throwing his son into the deep end. The story goes that when Frank was six, the old man tied a rope around his waist and dropped him into the South Melbourne sea baths. It was sink or swim. Little Frank swam and swam, becoming a Victorian champion at the age of 14 in 1906 and an Australian freestyle champion in 1908. That year, aged 16, he went to the London Olympics and came back with silver for the 400 yards and bronze in the 1500 yards. In 1910, Frank conquered European swimming, undefeated in dozens of events in London and on the continent. Frank had done a lot of this the hard way, As a kid, he'd trained in sewage-tainted waters. He'd survived a year-long bout with rheumatic fever when he was 10, and he'd meddled at the Olympics despite nearly drowning during training in the freezing Thames because he couldn't afford to pay for entry to swimming pools. 
Frank Beaurepaire might well have been cheated out of an Olympic gold medal when it was incorrectly ruled that he was a professional athlete and so he couldn't compete in the 1912 Games. After that, the Great War interrupted everyone's lives. Frank Beaurepaire signed up in May of 1915, but he suffered severe appendicitis and had to undergo surgery, which saw him resign his commission in the AIF. While he was deemed unfit for active service, Frank nevertheless enlisted as a volunteer in the YMCA, which then supported soldiers at the front lines. Frank left Australia in January 1916 and served in Egypt, England and then in France. The YMCA's canteens, which offered coffee, chocolate and cigarettes to soldiers, were well within shell range. So while Frank wasn't fighting, he was at risk. Frank got trench fever in mid-1917, was hospitalised and then returned to Australia. Later newspaper reports would say his repatriation was also the result of him being badly gassed, and this can still be found in accounts of his life today. But Frank, in February 1918, wrote to the Sydney referee newspaper to set the record straight. He said he'd only been mildly gassed, so mildly that the effects on his nose and mouth hadn't been detected until he was back home and his lungs had not been affected. Frank wrote that people might have been confusing him with one of his friends who had suffered terribly after being badly gassed. No way would Frank Beaurepaire claim heroics or suffering that weren't his. In fact, he, like many diggers, would barely own up to their own actual heroic acts. I mention this because it had soon come into play for him and other rescuers on that unexpected bloody battlefront, Coogee Beach. By 1922, Frank Beaurepaire was back at the top of his game, having two years earlier won silver at the Antwerp Olympics in the 4x200-yard freestyle relay and bronze in the 1500-yard freestyle. Spending the summer in Sydney, Frank joined the North Bondi Club and was to be the star attraction at the Surf Carnival. As it was about to start, around quarter past three, Milton Coughlin was 40 yards out in the channel and enjoying himself body surfing, accompanied by three other club members. Two from Coogee and one from North Bondi. As Coogee lifesaver Patrick Doran would tell the Sydney Morning Herald, quote, They were all getting some fine shoots. Coughlin especially got a couple of very fine shoots, which won enthusiastic applause from the crowd watching him and his companions. What Melton and the three other men didn't appear to know was that a shark had been seen in this vicinity in the past few days. And that very morning, a Mr. A. Poulton from Ranwick had a narrow escape. Later reports of this varied. In one, he'd been swimming when the shark had lunged at him, but it had overshot and given him just enough time to race to shore. In a more dramatic version, Mr. Poulton had been knocked over by the shark, which had then come in for the kill, but as the water was so murky, the shark had gone under him and tossed him from the water to safety. Either way, it was a close call. But it would seem that Mr. Poulton's story hadn't been widely circulated on the beach that day. Frank Baker, brother of legendary Olympian and film star Snowy Baker, would recall this day vividly 40 years later, when Frank was living in Hollywood and working as a stuntman, supporting actor and technical advisor. Quote, I had just entered the clubhouse. Going over to the overhanging veranda, I saw Coughlin swimming out from the corner of the beach, 45 yards from the clubhouse. I hailed him. He was in water no deeper than four feet as he crossed a narrow sandbank. Milton waving to his friends was reported in the Sun newspaper which said he did so after getting another great shoot with, quote, 
the grace and nonchalance of the practice surfer. It was now that Milton, who was farther out to sea than his companions, saw the danger. He started splashing and screamed to the other three men. The sun had him warning them, quote, For God's sake, go for your lives, there's a shark. The Sydney Morning Herald's version was, Go for your life, boys, there's a shark here. According to Frank Baker, it was a whale shark about eight feet long. Truth would say it was ten feet long. Patrick Doran said it was smaller. Given how fast everything happened, it's no surprise that no two versions were the same. And even those involved gave differing accounts in the immediate aftermath and later. Everyone saw it from a different viewpoint, and then their memories were likely affected by shock and terror, and further altered by how journalists recorded their quotes and editors chose to use or tweak them. According to Patrick Doran's later account, he heard someone say, Oh, oh! and looked out to see the shark dashing like a flash at Milton, who was in about six or seven feet of water. But to newspapers at first, Patrick Doran would say that Milton had given warning of two sharks, and that it had been a third, initially unseen one, that had come at him. This shark dashed at him once, twice, three times, and Milton fought it off with his fists and his feet. The Sun reported, A shriek went up from the large crowds attracted to the waterfront to witness the surf carnival. The alarm bell was rung. Club members rushed from the sheds while hundreds of frightened swimmers scrambled from the water. The Sunday Times would report, quote, Everyone could see, out past three sets of breakers, Milton Coughlin trying to fight off the shark. His arms, the paper said, worked up and down and around like great flails. He was engaged in a grim struggle for life with a ravenous shark that was darting savagely at his right side. He had saved the lives of his mates by warning them and now he was manfully endeavouring to save his own. Milton fought in a frenzy. Patrick Doran told the Sydney Morning Herald, With his arms in front of him, he was just about to swim to shore when the shark made a fierce leap at him. It practically lifted itself out of the water. The shark bit one arm, leaving it shredded and bleeding profusely. Was it the left arm or the right? No one seemed to be able to agree on that. And I don't think it really matters. Lifesaver James Hanley had seen what he thought was a porpoise out arcing through the water near Milton. Then it came at him. Quote, I saw blood and I knew it wasn't a porpoise. The blood seemed as though a big bag of red powder had burst. Frank Baker would later say, quote, Keeping its hold, it began to worry its victim like a dog shakes a slipper. Cochrane regained his footing on the sandbank and began to fight back at the attacker, which, its head practically out of the water, was hanging on and shaking the unfortunate 18-year-old youngster like a child's rattle. Milton wasn't on a sandbank. He was keeping himself above water with strong kicks. He put his other arm into the air to signal he was in trouble. But all reports and all witnesses agree that he didn't cry out for help. The shark came at him again. Milton brought his arm down to beat the water. The shark bit through it to the bone and tried to drag him under. But a wave lifted them both up. Witnesses saw Milton rise on the crest with blood streaming from both his arms. Despite his terrible injuries, his pain and his shock, he still kept his head above the surface of the now green-red foam. All of this happened in the space of about 10 seconds. At first, all the club members were paralysed with shock. Then, lifesaver James Hanley shouted, all you men in costumes, run down and give me a hand with the reel. There was a rush as club members grabbed a reel and ran for the rocks, most of them slipping and falling as they tried to get to the water's edge. 
Jack Chalmers had been walking along the beach with an overcoat over his two bathing costumes. He'd watched a bit of Milton's body surfing performance and would be reported by The Sun to have wondered why a seasoned body surfer had chosen such a dangerous spot where a shark could easily be lurking unseen. The Sun newspaper paraphrased him, quote, Chalmers said he was not without visions of impending danger, though being a stranger, he did not think he should voice them. Jack was walking on, about 50 yards from the clubhouse, when he heard a man call out, He's got him! Jack looked out and saw Milton fighting the shark. Quote, The shark was behaving like a mad dog. It lunged at Cochrane from all sides, and he was fighting it with his fists, just as if he was standing up to another man in a boxing contest. The monster would close its jaws on his arms and then dart for the purpose of preparing a new attack. Jack Chalmers didn't think. He just acted. Jack stripped down to one costume and ran for the rocks along the channel. Racing over them, he slipped and fell backwards, hitting his head and shoulders. Picking himself up, he was dazed. Patrick Doran and James Hanley arrived, struggling with the reel, whose line didn't have a belt attached. James Hanley asked Jack, Are you going out? Jack said yes. James knotted the cord around Jack's waist. Without a belt, this was very dangerous. When the line was pulled, there was a risk it would constrict around Jack's waist, rendering him helpless in the water. But there was no time to get a belt. Jack ran for the water. He slipped again and hit the rocks for a second time. Getting up with bloody shins, he dived into the channel. Jack Chalmers was heading straight for a man-eating shark, and maybe some of its friends attracted by the blood and frenzy. He swam six or seven yards, lifted his head from the water, ensured he had a bead on Milton's position, and kept swimming with powerful strokes. Jack was amazed the boy was still above water. Like Frank Baker, he thought he must have been standing on something. Yet he wasn't. With both of his arms as good as gone, he was still fighting and treading water by kicking furiously. Not only that, Milton still had the presence of mind to remember his training. As Jack said, quote, when I reached him, the shark was still tugging at one of his arms, and the water was stained with blood, yet he managed to turn his back towards me in the position we practice in the life-saving drill. Jack said Milton, quote, gripped my arm and said, hold on to me tight. In another account Jack would give, it was, don't leave me, John. Milton then collapsed into his arms. Jack held up his hand for his mates on shore to pull him in with the line, but he and Milton didn't move. His mates had gone from the rocks to the beach where they thought it would be easier to pull the men in. But for the moment, there was too much slack in the line. Jack Chalmers didn't know that. He thought the line was broken. Now, fear hit him. He recalled, quote, I counted on attack from the shark every second. The water was blood red for 10 yards in all directions. Jack couldn't believe that so much blood could come from Milton and that the boy could still be alive. With the shark very likely somewhere in this crimson murk, Jack now had to swim to rocks carrying Milton's dead weight. Safety was 30 yards away. Jack was only halfway there, rapidly becoming exhausted when he was grabbed by the neck of his costume. It was Frank Beau Repair. Like Jack, Frank had acted fast, and he'd also fallen when running across the rocks and dived in nevertheless. Now he helped Jack with Milton. So did another Coogee lifesaver, Charles Green, assistant club secretary, who dived in without even taking off his pants. The presence of three rescuers, splashing wildly as they brought Milton to shore, was thought to have kept the shark from making another attack. 
The going was a little easier also because the lifesavers ashore were gently pulling the line in. When Jack, Frank and Charles got Milton beside the rocks, lifesavers gathered to take the lad from the water. One of these was Frank Baker. Forty years later, he'd recall Milton saying, quote, Will you thank all the boys that helped get me out? And call my father to get to the hospital as quickly as possible. Frank said he'd replied, Sure, Mickey. Frank said he told Milton he could tell the boys himself when he got out of the hospital. Milton told him he was kidding and said, I'll bet I don't get as far as the hospital alive, but I'm going to try damned hard. Frank recalled, He actually winked at me, and then he closed his eyes and they took him away. No contemporary report contained this exchange, with Frank Baker giving it to a Los Angeles newspaper called The Mirror News in 1960. Instead, 1922 newspapers said Milton was rushed to the clubhouse. There, someone put a towel over his face so he wouldn't have to see his injuries. Milton said, Take it off, please. Descriptions of his wounds varied. Some reports said both arms had been bitten off at the shoulders. That didn't appear to be the case, but both limbs were terribly mangled. Dr. R.J. Taylor, honorary medical officer of the Coogee Lifesaving Club, applied tourniquets as best he could. An ambulance arrived and rushed Milton to Sydney Hospital. The district superintendent of the Red Cross, who sat by the boy in the speeding vehicle, described Milton as still having a bright light in his eye when he said, I expect my number's up, but by Jove, that shark stopped one or two good ones. Shortly after that, Milton lapsed into unconsciousness. He was admitted to hospital by Dr. Kem Yee, who'd report the patient had a big lacerated wound on the left shoulder and two semicircular incisions on the right arm. Five minutes later, as Milton was being hurried into an operating theatre, this brave young lifesaver died from his massive blood loss. Dr. Kem Yee would say there had been nothing he could do, though had there been a hospital closer to the beach, he might have been saved. According to Frank Baker, it was 23 minutes from the time the cry of shark went up to the moment that Milton died. This corresponds with the reports from the time. So too did Frank Baker saying, quote, I've seen many men die in two world wars and a few odd ones here and there, but I have yet to see one die as game as this lad. I'll always remember him to my dying day as the gamest kid I ever knew. At the time, James Hanley had insisted on making this same point. Quote, I want to say this. During the whole of the time, from when the shark first attacked until the end, Milton Coughlin never had a look of fear on his face and did everything possible to beat the shark off. He never even cried for help. He was one of the gamest boys in the surf. Back on Coogee Beach, news of this brave lifesaver's death spread fast. The carnival was postponed. In the city, news desk phones were ringing and reporters were rushing to the beach. The Sun and the Evening News would have the story in readers' hands within a few hours, and the Sunday Times and the Truth would carry it the next morning. This wasn't a man disappearing in Newcastle at twilight, leaving a few shocked mates wondering what had happened to him. This was a man being devoured in Sydney in the middle of the day, in front of thousands of horrified witnesses. This was a shark attack like nothing before. A few desperate minutes had turned a young man into a tragic victim. But those few desperate minutes had also produced two heroes whose bravery was equal to that shown by men in the Dardanelles and on the Western Front. 
From this moment, the lives of Jack Chalmers and Frank Beaurepaire would change dramatically. And thanks to graphic newspaper stories with headlines like Into the Jaws of Death, Australians would change the way they thought about sharks. The creatures were no longer just a natural if rare threat, like being struck by lightning, bitten by a taipan, or infected by a plague flea. They were something else. Something monstrous and evil had cast its shadow over Sydney's golden pleasure grounds. After 134 years of white settlement, Milton Coughlin had become the first person known to be killed by a shark on a Sydney ocean beach. 134 years. Yet the next victim was less than one month away from meeting the same fate at the same place. When his death came, it confirmed that Sydney siders had to reclaim their beloved beaches by launching a war on the monsters. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part one of the two-part Forgotten Australia episode, Shark Attack of the Century. The second and final part will be with you soon. If you enjoy Forgotten Australia, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your downloads. It only takes a minute, and I love hearing what you think of the show. It also helps the podcast reach other people, thanks to the various algorithms I can't even pretend to understand. This episode of Forgotten Australia has been made with extensive reference to historic newspapers found at the National Library of Australia's wonderful Trove database. I've also used military records found at the National Archives of Australia and family records from Ancestry.com.au. I consulted the online edition of Robin Chalmers' 2011 memoir inside the Canberra Press Gallery, Life in the Wedding Cake of Old Parliament House. Further, thanks to the generous contributions of Forgotten Australia supporters, I got my hands on copies of four very useful books. These are Carolyn Ford's 2014 Sydney Beaches, A History, Bruce Elder's 2006 Ready, I Ready, A Century of North Bondi Surf Lifesaving Club, Pictorial History, Eastern Suburbs, edited by Joan Lawrence and Alan Sharp and published in 1999, and finally, George Thomas Lloyd's 1862 memoir, 33 Years in Tasmania and Victoria, which was republished in 2017 in a Kindle edition. So, a big thanks to all you wonderful Patreon supporters, including recent champions Tim Doyle, Chris Lewis, Faye Silver, and Joel Martin. Thanks also to everyone who's made lovely comments via the Facebook page, Forgotten Oz Podcast. I love hearing from you. If you'd like to help make Forgotten Australia by becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, and this link is also in your show notes. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.